Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. I'm Dan Grazier. For those of you familiar with our work, you will no doubt recognize the name John Boyd. He is the legendary Air Force Colonel, considered by many to be one of the best fighter pilots ever to take to the sky. He is, of course, today best remembered for the OODA loop, the decision cycle of Observe, Orient, Decide, Act, which he first spoke about within the context of the military, but has since been used in uh, the business world, in sports, uh, and even in politics. But his work did not stop there. His larger ideas about how the military should be organized and operate have helped to shape the work of two generations of military reformers, including ours. His influence was very much in evidence during the 1991 Gulf War. Many of those in charge then had received his brief Patterns of Conflict, an extremely thorough study of warfare throughout history that identified many of the key elements of successful military organizations. Colonel Boyd's unique analysis and synthesis of ideas shaped operations in the desert to a degree that many people even today don't fully appreciate. In the months after that conflict, members of Congress wanted to better understand what went right and what went wrong. And to that end, they invited Colonel Boyd to testify in front of the House Armed Services Committee on April 30, 1991, to get his thoughts. And it was during that hearing that he provided the most succinct explanation of the central theme of the military reform movement. And here is a clip from that hearing. First of all, from a, from a reform perspective, if we ask what does it take to win wars, reformers believe that there are three basic elements and an order of importance they are. People. Why? Because pe wars are fought by people, not weapons. They use weapons. Strategy and tactics. Because wars fought without innovative ideas become bloodbaths, winnable or not. Hardware. Because weapons that don't work or can't be bought in adequate quantity will bring down even the best people and best ideas. Sadly, official Washington all too often ignores Colonel Boyd's message. Most of the discussions about the military today is done in the context of weapons. You hear lots of talk about military technology, but very little discussion about how it will be employed, and even less about how these new technological marvels will affect the training and preparation of the men and women who will have to take them into battle. This has been a major focus of our work exposing the problems of the F-35 and other aircraft currently in development. While the considerable costs of these programs are almost too depressing to contemplate, they impact the, the military's combat effectiveness in a much more far-reaching way, in part due to their high costs both to purchase and operate. The military today is having difficulty training pilots. The U.S. military attracts some of the finest individuals in the world, uh, people who have the necessary ability and motivation to be great military aviators. But as things stand now, they simply can't get enough flying hours to truly develop their skills. As we have pointed out in several recent articles, uh, just to take one example, the F-35 has a very low availability rate. In 2015, the entire fleet averaged a 51% availability rate meaning that half of all planes were not ready to fly at any given time. And just due to the heavy maintenance burden of this complicated aircraft, most planes could only fly once every five days or so. That means that pilots assigned to these squadrons get precious little time in the cockpit. The 
but the problem of limited flight hours is not confined just to the F-35. Uh, there have been a few media reports in the past few months about this issue. Uh, and one such report detailing problems in the Marine Corps said pilots of the CH-53 heavy lift helicopters were averaging a little more than 10 hours per month. And F-18 pilots were only flying an average of 8.8 hours a month. These pitiful numbers are far less than the 30 hours a month that has been recognized as necessary for pilots to adequately develop their skills. One person who has addressed this problem within the services is retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Carl Forsling. He flew both the CH-46 helicopter and the MV-22 Osprey during his 20-year career. In a recent article published in Task and Purpose, he wrote about the causes of this problem and offered a few suggestions about how to begin fixing it. I sat down with Colonel Forsling recently to discuss these matters and the impact they have on pilots. Is aviation is a little different than a lot of uh, other military specialties. Uh, it's very hard for sometimes people not to, uh, to understand that, especially the layperson, just in that it's kind of a unique blend between the higher level of warfare, if you will, um, the tactical and operational levels, and then also the hands-on uh, tactile uh, physical part of it. Um, so trying to blend those uh, is, is kind of the unique challenge of a military pilot and something I think that's the reason why guys like to do military aviation. Uh, most other MOSs, uh, military occupational specialties, uh, let's call them the Marine Corps, uh, you kind of do one or the other, especially when you get to the officer ranks. You're either a, uh, a tactician after you reach a certain level or you're a hands-on person. Uh, sometimes that's rank distinguished, sometimes that's job distinguished, but the aviation world has sort of a blend of the two. All right, now, I, I've questioned some of today's military leaders about the lack of flight hours, and they acknowledge the problem generally, but they say that they can make up for it in, with simulator training. So in your experience, can flight simulators substitute actual flight experience? To some degree, yes. Now, the, the, the capability of that, I think, has been oversold uh, as a day-to-day a -day thing. Um, as we, as we talked, talked about earlier, um, the simulators are very, very good on certain aviation skills. Uh, they do help with that, the meat and potatoes, the blocking and tackling, as I, I like to refer to them. Uh, your things such as instrument flying, which is a, is a fundamental, being able to fly in bad weather. Uh, obviously, bad, bad weather isn't available out in the real world every day, so it's actually good to have a tool that you can do that. You can set up approaches at airports that are nowhere near your military base where you're actually stationed. Um, and to, you know, depending on the degree of support you give the simulators, you can make that pretty, pretty high fidelity. Same thing with emergency procedures. You can do whatever you want to the aircraft in the simulator. You can make the hydraulics drain out. You can set the aircraft on fire and train the air, the air crew to do the proper steps to simulate that. And so for those things, uh, the simulators are great tools. Um, but that's just building that, that baseline uh, to which you then add those additional mission sets on, on top of. You know, for example, in the, in the V-22 or the CH-46 that I've flown before, um, you can simulate things like you know, a fast, fast choping Marines uh, out of the back of these aircraft. Um, but I can tell you in a simulator, all it is is keep the aircraft hovered over one spot. Uh, that's great. It does teach some skill set, but there's a whole lot of difference between doing it uh, in a air-conditioned simulator in a, a big bay at New River uh, in North Carolina than it is trying to hover with a the crazy gust of wind around buildings with uh, outside factors with the, as the Marines get out, the center of gravity of the aircraft shifts, means you have to adjust things in the aircraft. All those things um, 
And people will say that yes, you can get, uh, you know, if, as the graphics improve and the computer processing improves, uh, we can adjust those things. But uh, I think that's being very optimistic. It's, it's sort of like saying that uh, if you're an NFL team, if you just got the better tackling dummy on the uh, defensive line, you could trade in your guard to, <laughs> to, do, uh, to block him better. Yes, you can you know, get some of the base skills down, but at some point he has to have you know, the uh, defensive lineman's face in his face, you know, hands in his face mask and uh, really, really practice uh, in a realistic fashion. And, some, and a major portion that has to be done in a real aircraft. There's really no way around that. So I have a, a fighter pilot buddy of mine talks about the seat feel uh, of uh, of the fighter plane, right? And uh, the the atmospherics is also how I describe it with just hitting the sun hitting the canopy and and that's the kind of stuff that can't be replicated very well in a simulator. Oh, uh, totally not. And obviously, each aircraft has its own nuances. Uh, obviously, if today's technology, and I don't know if we'll ever be able to duplicate, especially in the in the tack air environment. Uh, your fighters and uh, fighter attack aircraft, you know, the G-forces, you know, unless we uh, figure out a way to link up a realistic centrifuge, those guys are never going to be able to properly replicate it. But that same thing is true for, for any other type of aircraft. And the environments you work in the military are, are so unique uh, to, to the military flying experience. Um, you know, they, people always uh, like to point to the commercial air, airline world and the fact that a uh, a commercial airline pilot will never fly an actual aircraft until it's chock full of passengers. Um, but that environment, as demanding as it is, not to take anything away from my civilian uh, flying friends, uh, because they do a very demanding job as well, but the environments they work at out of can be duplicated more realistically in a simulator than some of the very austere, very rugged, um, and uh, very treacherous, uh, unpredictable. Yeah, the key thing there being the unpredictability of a military environment. All right, well, piggybacking on the unpredictability aspect of it, in your, in your article from Task and Purpose, you wrote about the fundamentals of flying and why they need to uh, come naturally. So why, and that, that naturally part, is that's an important point. Can you kind of explain that for the audience, like why that kind of stuff has to be muscle memory for the, for the pilots? Uh, um, sure. That, well, that comes down to what we were just uh, talking about a minute ago. How flying is kind of a, a mixture of uh, both a hands-on, uh, I want to say manual labor type skill, uh, but one that's a hand-eye coordination uh, type of drill, much like a sport, uh, but also a, a higher level thinking skill, integrating the tactics and the overall uh, mission management. And again, some of that can be duplicated outside here, outside of the aircraft, but that muscle memory uh, of building that so that the basic tasks, because obviously you know, being able to say, land in a predictable fashion, land the same, you be able to pick a landing spot and go to that each and every time. Uh, being able to stay on airspeed, on altitude, uh, those are the basic skills and those have to be mastered in second nature because if you can't keep a, a given altitude, a given speed, uh, land on the same spot every time in you know, the most ideal environment, there's no way when you add all these several additive conditions, again, that's the, the hallmark of military flying, uh, whether that's at night, in poor weather, at a ship, uh, in the sand, something like that, uh, if you haven't ma managed mastered the, what I, I like to call the the, the blocking and tackling skills, uh, the idea that you can somehow run some trick play uh, of these amazing capabilities we advertise in the military without being able to handle the fundamentals of blocking and tackling and doing you know the running plays, if you will, uh, you're never going to be able to get those higher level skills to the point where you can execute those missions safely and effectively if you can't do the basics, the, the meat and potatoes, blocking and tackling stuff uh, of military aviation. Okay, and in your article you, you mentioned act, 
you, you quoted a couple numbers in there. Uh, I think it was like 30 hours, 20 hours, 15 hours, and the differences uh, of the skills that a pilot can develop within those. Can you explain like the, the 15 hours and below was not even... Right. The, the 15 hours has actually been established as a, a target number by the military. It's been uh, replicated and advertised you know, up and down the chain of command for some years as being the minimum number that a pilot needs just to be able to operate an aircraft safely in the environments we work in routinely. Uh, in the article, I, I extrapolate that based on my own personal experience, um, whereas I would say 20, you know, 15, you're flying just well enough not to scare yourself on a regular basis. At, at 20, you're fairly confident and you've reached something of a status quo where you're not uh, degrading your skills over time. And, and 30 is when you start to build some real confidence and again, go, 20 you're still at that blocking and tackling level, 30 is where you're getting some more confidence in your airframe and are, are able to execute things that may be outside the normal uh, core mission sets of your aircraft, the more exotic missions, and those vary by platform. But again, it goes sort of the 15 would be the absolute bare minimum for safe operations, 20 is a maintenance level in my opinion, and 30 is where people are actually starting to grow as aviators and maintain some progression in their skill level over time. Right, and these hours are over over a month. So right. when we see news stories where a lot of pilots are getting less than ten hours a month now, that's a real cause for concern. That's when you get below ten. You know, it reminds me back in the '80s. We used to have these. Uh, you testify how great the American military was because we trained so hard, and we'd always uh, speak mockingly of some Russian or, or sorry Soviet at the time, or uh, Eastern Bloc pilot getting. You know, they don't even fly ten hours a month, and the fact that we're at these laughable levels of training hours at this point is distressing. Um, you know, that's, like I said, once you go below that 15 level, uh, you're actually endangering the safety, not just in a, uh, the hard missions at night on the boat, etc. That's the point where it's not entirely safe to fly the aircraft in a benign condition uh, in, the, in the normal day-to-day -day missions of a, of a military aircraft. Why, in, in your estimation, are pilots not able to fly uh, as many hours now uh, as they were in years previous? Well, I, the, the sh there's sort of a short-term and a long-term perspective on this. In the short term, you've seen a, a decline over the last several years, uh, probably at a culminating point almost now, uh, where you can sort of see the uh, commitment versus uh, assets come to uh, that those two factors intersecting and just be coming to a head, uh, where uh, because of the contingency demands of our armed forces right now uh, versus the assets we're throwing at those, uh, you have one or the other has to give. Either the commitment we're making, commitments we make overseas for operational uh, employment of these aircraft has to go down or the assets have to go up. There's really no way around that in the short term. Um, and the that commit, that's a commitment versus assets thing is, is what's driving what we're seeing right now. Now you can back that up a little ways and look at the, the aircraft we've been buying over time. And you know, some of these, these aircraft have incredible capabilities. Um, you know, my, my personal aircraft, the Osprey, when I was in the military, uh, was an example of that. And there's uh, you know, the Joint Strike Fighter, and they, they bring incredible capabilities to the table. But the trade-off for that is uh, the cost per flight hour the specialized facilities, the maintainers you need to keep them going, uh, you, you've incurred basically what I would call a huge fixed cost. And even the variable cost goes up on a per flight hour basis. And so in exchange for you know, 
just to say, you know, a, let's just say a 50% increase in capability, you may have a 75 or greater percent increase in cost, uh, both per aircraft and per flight hour. So you get yourself to the situation where to keep those bare minimum, the, the, the blocking and tackling skills going, that is such an incredible cost in, in the parts, labor, uh, and pilots that we can't, uh, we've driven ourselves this, this culminate, culminating point um, just because of uh, the capabilities we've desired to add to the force, which you can make arguments whether or not we need those, but we've made the commitment to have them. And if you're gonna, ha if you're gonna drive a Lamborghini, you've gotta expect your oil changes are gonna cost a lot more than if you uh, decide to stick with your Ford pickup. All right, so based on that, how do we moving forward? Let's say we're we're looking at the next the next program uh, beyond the F thirty five. How do we find that balance? What's the what's the right balance? Do we go for the super super capable plane, or do we go for something that's maybe not quite as capable, but we can we can crank out better pilots because it can fly more? Where do you how do you find that balance? I, I would I would like to say we yeah you know, we didn't have to have that trade off that we could have these great machines, um, and have the uh, the readiness levels we need to train the pilots. Uh, it's becoming clear that we don't at this point. Uh, so again, working backwards one step, I'd say we have to look at it overall the demands what we're putting on the military and what mission sets uh, we're asking them to do. And that goes beyond the scope of my expertise, but we really have to make a decision how we're going to orient the force and what missions we need to are, are our go-to missions and necessary missions. Uh, just to use an example, um, you know, the Osprey uh, is, is an aircraft that brings capabilities that did not exist at all in the military before. Um, and that's, and a lot of people say that is a transformational capability. It's something that just really did not exist, the ability to do a long range uh, raid or uh, transportation of troops and still land vertically and do those things. And I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. I suppose I'm a little biased in that respect. In that respect. Um, but once you make that commitment, you have to source it. And is our military strategy based on the capability of doing that? Well, if it is, then yes, it's worth that investment. Um, but you know, looking at you know, the covers, the F-35, for example, um, again, designed as a low-cost alternative to some other aircraft that we might have gotten, and uh, we haven't quite achieved the, the synergies uh, of, of reducing costs with it. Um, but is it the right aircraft for the task we're doing? Right now, it's be, you know, if, we, if we're out there right now, and although it's been declared deployable, it hasn't really uh, seen combat as of yet, um, right now, our fixed-wing aircraft, our bomb trucks, uh, drop, dropping bombs in a low-threat environment. And if that's what we're anticipating, then it's probably a more simple platform that's going to be able to accomplish the bulk of that. And the high-low mix, if we will, if we need to have that, you know, the, the F-22 is proposed as the, the high and the high-low mix originally. If that silver bullet strategy is what we want, then we need to uh, go to it. But the jack-of-all-trades thing, uh, based on the resources we plan on doing it, I'm throwing at it, uh, it's just not going to happen. We can't uh, be the small war contingency, low intensity conflict force and still be uh, geared toward these high level conflicts. And we have to make choices. Uh, we can't, uh, we can't uh, you know, as Yogi Bear would say, you know, take both the forks in the road uh, when given these, these opportunities and choices. So I've had a couple conversations with some pilots recently and they've talked about how they're a little frustrated with all of this and how you know they 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 aren't, they aren't getting a lot of flight hours, not nearly as many as they think they should be getting, or as much as they want to get. And so, 
some of them have expressed their desire that hey I'm I'm going to get out when I can. You know, can you talk about the and we've seen a lot of stories recently about how the services are having trouble retaining pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, can you explain if there's a connection between flight hours and pilot retention? There there's a huge one. Um, it's uh, again, so it's hard for some people, the outsiders, to truly understand the, the culture that goes goes into a military pilot. Uh, again, it's I think it's attracts an interesting bunch of people because of that blend of uh, the hands-on and the higher-level thinking skills that it needs. Uh, that's kind of unique both in and out of the military. Um, so people who go into there want to do stuff. Uh, they they like to fly. Uh, they like to employ their aircraft. Um, and on a daily level, just like any other Marine Corps unit, there's a certain amount of overhead of, uh, you might call them BS tasks. Uh, the Air Force calls them queep, <laughs> as in mission creep with a Q. Um, but so it's administrative tasks every military unit has in the wing uh, is, no, is no exception. And so most of that sort of military pilot servicing is the tax that they pay in order to go fly. And it's sort of funny, no matter how little an air uh, squadron flies, that, that amount of extraneous tasking uh, doesn't seem to go down proportionally. So these guys find themselves doing uh, basically, you know, the the stereotype is office space from the, the I think it was the late 90s or early 2000s movies. And a lot of the military anywhere is like that. Um, but uh, they were willing, willing to put up with that sort of uh, that stuff as long as they were flying. And now that that stuff stays the same and they're flying a lot less and also deploying uh, a lot more, uh, which again, these guys sign up for to a certain extent, but there's a big difference between uh, you know, deploying for six months out of every two years and deploying six months out of every 12. And these guys are seeing that and uh, they can't, you know, uh, mentally, emotionally, family-wise, whatever you want to call it, uh, it exerts a pretty big toll on them. And, and that's uh, the flat out reward of being the you know, Marine aviator, Air Force pilots, uh, Navy pilot uh, is diminishing and you know, they're not maintaining the skills. They're working just as hard and getting less out of it. Um, so you see that the military, you know, the Air Force has made headlines, especially lately, they're, they're actually in a, in a deep, deep hole. But I start to see it, uh, even though I'm retired now, talking to a lot of my friends who are now relatively senior, and uh, they describe the same thing. And you know, obviously each service has its own culture. Uh, I think uh, Marines have a little bit of in it, more innate masochism in them than uh, some of the other members. They may ex uh, stay with it a little bit longer. Um, but they are going to find ways to get out and do, you know, another challenging job, another line of work, or find someone that will fly them as much as they want to fly, be the airlines or EMS helicopters or, or what have you. They're going to be going to go out and look for that. And unfortunately, um, because the it ties in with the flight hour thing in another way, is that uh, because of the limited number of total hours these commanders have, they have to triage their pilots. So they have a certain number of crews that have to be certified as capable of doing a certain number of missions, depending on their type model series. Uh, so, and not their, their entire squad does not have to be certified to do them uh, by completing the, the requisite codes and, and their syllabus. So they'll uh, typically, you'll see a, a small number of pilots basically become the all-stars uh, the Marine Corps, uh, we call them weapons tactics instructors. There's another level, night system instructor, et cetera. And uh, those guys tend to get the, a lion's share of the flight hours because they're flying their own currency, but also they're teaching all the other pilots. And because the Marine Corps and, and the other services as well, they're, they're geared towards getting ready for the next deployment. 
and they do like get these required events done prior to that, they triage it. And the first, the first line gets the most, then they have a, uh, a second tier of pilots that they need to be capable co-pilots or uh, non-flight leaders. And then they have their more junior guys or sometimes the guys just are not the, the go-getters. There's some in every organization that sort of get put down at the, the very bottom and hardly get any. Um, which is setting up all those groups to be un, uh, displeased. You know, the, the, uh, the guys in the low end, just because they're, they're just uh, getting abused and not getting any uh, recognition, flight time, et cetera, for it. And even if they could be capable people with enough practice, they're not getting that. And they're just seeing themselves do the office space jobs all day. And on the, on the top high end, you see the guys who are the go-to uh, um, pilots in their squadrons. And they feel like they're just getting, uh, you know, road hard and put down what, if you will. Um, that they're doing the, the bulk of the flight flight planning, the tactics, the whole rest of it. Uh, they're staying up late because most of these harder flights are practiced at night, so they're uh, working till 1, 2 in the morning or, or beyond sometimes, even stateside. And, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing the reward for being really good at their jobs is just being more work. And so those guys are also getting worn out. And, and I spoke to a, a squadron commander, a friend of mine recently in, in the Marines, who's he has actually recently left for deployment. and. You know, those pilots, his go-to guys are actually, all four of them, uh, in his case, they want to punch out of the Marine Corps uh, at the next opportunity they have, uh, just because they can't keep up with it anymore. And which is unfortunate. These guys have, you know, by a combination of skill and work, are, have become the, the, his uh, go-to Marines uh, on this. And it's true on the enlisted side as well, for, for their air crew specialties. And, uh, and those are the ones that are, are leaving, and so, you know, you're left with um, guys that, you know, are probably your, in a, in a normal normal organization, normal time, you know, however many years ago, might have just been your, uh, uh, your workhorse uh, uh, type of guys. Those, those have to pick up the mantle, and they were not adequately prepared because you gave all the flight hours to the, the superstars who you needed just to get out the door for your next deployment. And it sets up a, a, an environment where each, each successive generation uh, is going to become a little bit less well-trained, uh, a little bit less motivated, et cetera, and you're not going to end up keeping your best people uh, uh, any longer. And the ones you have haven't been trained as well as they could have been either. Right, uh, and that and they're in the the people issues are always the most important. And uh, I think unfortunately they aren't normally dealt with adequately. But I the the solution, the short term solution that we often hear in Washington, uh, particularly the Air Force right now, is the idea that the pilots are leaving because they can make more money as airline pilots and and so if we just give them more bonuses then you know they're gonna they're gonna stick around but people join the military to become pilots to fly a certain kind of aircraft right like you go through all that stuff because you want to fly fly a fighter plane not necessarily a you know a 767 or something like that yeah that's that's definitely true and, and obviously there is some some amount of money that would keep people i mean that, that's that's self-evident now are they staying for the right reasons it's a whole other issue uh, but th that is the these are all smart guys um they you know are capable of doing a lot of things in the world they're all they're all you know well-trained leaders in the marine corps they can do any number of other things um you know going back to when they graduated high school you know they went to good schools, they entered a competitive program, they were accepted to it, they got accepted through flight school, they graduated through what's an extremely demanding program, and they could have applied that to any number of other things. And, but they did it because they wanted to fly military aircraft, they wanted to serve their country, they wanted to do an exciting, exciting job and go exciting places. Um, 
And if you deny them the ability to do those things, then yes, they are going to find a fulfilling career doing something else that isn't what our country needs those people to do. Um, yes, we do need people to be executives and all these other positions back home, but these people are the types of individuals who are capable of doing this very unique job, and uh, we're almost doing all we can to chase them out uh, of the military. Well, I also think that it's a, there's a bit of a self-defeating cycle uh, in this with regards to the, and I do love the term queep as well, uh, I think there's a self-defeating cycle because as flight hours go down, then officers need to find a different way to make themselves stand out from their peers. And one of the ways that they do this, and you definitely see this on the ground side, is you know who can get the Iron Butt Award for spending the most time in the office. Right. Uh, yeah, you've hit on something that's uh, uh, that is right on the money. Um, you know, if you if you can't be a superstar and doing what your organization is supposed to be doing, you try and find yourself. You know, a way to make it in another way. And, and that, again, that probably does contribute to that queep. You know, the next guy in that billet, now, you know, the first guy, you, know, you reorganize the office, the next guy has to make his own software program, and the next guy after that has to, you know, keep up in the ante. You know, these are competitive people that by nature, they want to be successful. And uh, you can call it brown nose, you can call it what you will, but they're going to uh, try and contribute, even if it might not be in a way that contributes to the unit's mission and uh, probably in the long term uh, creates a culture. Uh, it's worse in some places than others. And each, you know, to be honest, each type model series and each service obviously have their own distinct cultures. But uh, you'll find a lot, especially the, the ones that are not uh, operational flyers, you'll talk to them and uh, they are absolutely cutthroat. It's shocking, even as a Marine pilot, how, how cutthroat these get when, when you can't focus your energy on a productive fashion. Uh, they, they focus on each other, and that's that's not what we want uh, in, in a military organization. All right. So if you know if pilots aren't flying all that much, uh, how are they being evaluated? That's a, a subject, a sore subject for for pilots. I can't speak for the the Army in particular, but the, the uh, Marine Corps and the Navy, uh, your fitness report, uh, as we call it in the, in the Marines. About uh, out of the 13 categories that uh, people are typically graded on, uh, 11 of those have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, how that aviator flies. Um, two uh, kind of do. Um, and uh, that gets in keeping again with the, the grounding-oriented culture of the Marine Corps. And obviously, as a military organization, there has to still be a premium on you know the things of, of discipline and uh, general leadership and uh, administration, things of that nature. That, those are all, all officership things. Uh, but again, going back to why these guys you know, joined and what their end product of their work is, is um, being able to fly an aircraft and put troops on the ground, being able to fly an aircraft and drop bombs on a target. Um, and what's often overlooked in there, there's a great deal of leadership that goes on with that. And multi-career aircraft, obviously it's intrinsic in the cockpit. I have. Between, you know, had I guess in this point, four to five people working directly, you know, in my aircraft. But on top of that, I could be leading anywhere from, you know, two to over a dozen aircraft at one time. And to think that that doesn't fit, you know, that in the Marine Corps, stereotypical leadership is regarded as to how well do you counsel people, you know, on the semi-annual basis, and that's how people are typically graded on that. The the flight leadership, uh, a good CO will keep that in mind. But a lot of times it is uh, unfortunately put by the wayside. Um, and that leadership, and that, that's uh, actual stick skill, 
is not adequately measured when you put that uh, aviator's evaluations up against his peers. And so sometimes the ones who are the, uh, the best pilots don't necessarily get ahead as much as they should and, and keep instilling an aviation-centric culture. Um, so one, that, that could be definitely revised and you know, encourage more uh, uh, aviation uh, uh, accentuated evaluations would be a huge thing to help negate some of the, the office space culture uh, whereas people are always trying to outdo each other on non-aviation things, we should be encouraging them to outdo each other in the aircraft. Uh, and that's the kind of competition that's a positive competition, but it's a negative one we all too often see uh, in aviation communities. So you're telling me that the kind of competition that we all saw in Top Gun is not the, the reality? No, the, uh, unfortunately there is no uh, trophy in the ladies' room or otherwise um, for second place, uh, as it was in Top Gun. But... Uh, yeah, that, that's everyone wants to join. Everyone joined the, the military or the you know naval aviation, wanting to be be maverick in some some extent. That that's it's cliche. It's a bit cheesy, but there is something of that. That adventure, you know, that movie. Not, maybe not the most you know the best example of it, but that's that's what people join for. And uh, all too often, it's it's a much different movie. Uh, it's it's nine tenths off of space, and uh, you know another five percent Top Gun, and then five percent of. Uh, um, yeah, the worst parts of Full Metal Jacket and uh, Heartbreak Ridge, probably. <laughs> Indeed. Again, that was Lieutenant Colonel Carl Forsling. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org Strauss. There, you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.